0: This episode is brought to you by Bend a
1: Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. Learn more at bendatable.com. That's B E N T O T A B L E.com. And when you use code HRN for a new subscription, you get $20 off, and we at HRN get $10. Oh,
2: come on. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Hello and welcome to
1: Cooking Issues,
3: this is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you
1: live
3: on the Heritage Radio Network, but still, I'm in my house in the Lower East Side, John, uh, John, Hull from Booker and Dax is uh, up there in the uh, Murray Hill, we got Nastasia. where are you right now, Nastassia the Hammer Lopez? Hell's Kitchen. Hell's, oh, you're back in, still in New York. Huh? You haven't gone back to Stanford? No, I was there,
2: but I was, I've was. i been trying to work with Macy, so I have to be here. What
3: do you mean? You still have to like socially distance. You just feel better when you're like...
2: No, like... no. No, I, we don't have to. Well, we can talk offline about it. It's the work with Jose Andreas I told you about yesterday.
3: Okay. All right. And uh, Matt in the booth, and the booth is in Rhode Island still, Matt?
4: I am in my own personal hell. What? <laughs> I said I'm in my own personal hell.
3: <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Your personal recording hell.
4: Yes. Nice. It's, That's. I love that.
3: Coming at That's you live. Best. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so uh, we have. I'll I'll bring him in now, just so he doesn't have to sit there and not talk for a while, uh, while we talk about you know our week in review. Uh, we have, uh, I've known him for quite a while, uh, it's first time on the show, uh, Matt Sartwell from Kitchen Arts and Letters. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, hey, listen. So for those of you, I don't know, if you've never been to New York City before, uh, then you've never been to Kitchen Arts and Letters, but, uh, right up on, you take the, the, the number six train. Up to the uh what is it, 96th Street stop, right?
2: 96th Street, yeah.
3: Yeah. And then you're like right on that hill next to the model shop. It's in a weird little block you're on, right? We uh
2: we aren't met like many other blocks in the city, no. Uh, lots of small, quirky individual businesses.
3: Yeah, so it's like so you like you, you go into this store and you you know you wouldn't necessarily know if you didn't know about it. But you go into the store, and as soon as you're there, you're like, oh, my God, this is the best cookbook store I've ever been in. And this is actually what happened to me. So, like, uh, sometime – Matt, you remember that book? uh, What was it? It was by a guy named um, Wing – somebody – Wing Scott and and Dove, the the Bread Builders book. Who wrote that? The Bread Builders, yeah. Absolutely. So this was – I don't know. This was like – 2000 and when did that come out? Like 2000, 2001, something like that? Uh, I might've even thought it was a little earlier than that. but uh, Maybe, well it was before, it was before 9-11 anyway. I um, I was trying to research baking bread. I was beginning to bread, this is, maybe it was late 90s. I don't even remember. And I, you know, the online buying, you know, already existed, uh, you know, it was rel- relatively new. And I had found out on, you know, one of the user groups about this book that this book existed, but I didn't want to, I needed to see it because, you know, I'm one of those people that I need to see a book to see whether or not I'm going to agree with it. And the subject of this book, by the way, and it it is a classic in the field, I think in its own right, it was kind of a, a game changing book, at least for me, was about building your own retained heat masonry ovens uh, and kind of a style of bread baking that wasn't well known among you know average idiots at the time this is when bread in the united states was really 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 bad in general um anyway so i was like well i want to go see this book in person before i buy it online i hear there's a cookbook store so i took the trip up to kitchen kitchen arts and letters and then i bought it immediately from them because i realized what a gem this bookstore was and um because not just the books when you show up the team at kitchen arts and letters knows more about cookbooks than anybody else so chefs go there writers go there and they don't just say you know they don't just look for a book they already know they're like what are all the books on this subject what you know how do they fit in with each other what would you recommend plus they can find old books so it's like it's 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 like having a, a store with research librarians available to you kind of at all times, it's an amazing place, you need to go. Would you say it's accurate reflection?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big part of the excitement for us is is, is being challenged by the questions our customers ask us because I mean, we don't have it all like right at our fingertips, but we love going on the hunt. And sometimes we can answer the questions in a couple of minutes and sometimes it takes a little longer but, uh, yeah, I mean, to go to sort of go down a different rabbit hole every day, that's what keeps the, the job interesting. Yeah.
3: I mean, uh, I mean, we've, I, I know that everyone I know has thrown you uh, curveballs over the over the years. My brother in law, Wiley Dufresne, is always a, a big customer and he, and he would always give you crazy tasks to, to find. Right. <laughs>
2: yes. And uh, Wiley is is good for keeping us on our toes um and when he has a lot of time on his hands we uh, we <laughs> feel it
3: so uh and you you know you got you guys are shut down right like everyone else or no
2: well we're um we're filling website orders so going in three days a week to pack and and fill orders and so forth um but no browsing but we're still answering lots of questions uh helping people choose books uh sometimes for you know obscure questions and sometimes very general ones like you know I want to start baking bread.
3: Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, don't, uh, you're, you're going to trigger Nastasia. Nastasia hates all of the COVID-based uh, bread baking.
2: No, no, no. Again, it's not about bread baking. It's about
1: the couples that are, like, showing off their bread baking skills together. That's all. That's why I don't resent Dax. I told you this, Dave. Yeah, but it's,
3: it's kind of the same hatred you have of ramps, though, no? But you no, like ramps not- now, don't you? No, no, it's way different. Yeah,
0: I do like grams. It's the
3: over excitement about
2: something that's been around for a really long time. Like, it's it's it
4: just seems. You mean fake. like their significant other?
0: <laughs> their over for their significant other?
4: Yeah, who's been around for a long time, and now they have to pay attention. to No, you.
0: I'm
2: saying the practice of bread. Yeah, maybe that maybe it extends into that too, man. I haven't I haven't gone to
3: therapy in six weeks, so. So okay, so the so I brought you on obviously for classics in the field uh, Matt, but one other thing I want to mention have you noticed this fact? So I was researching a um, I was researching a, a a book and I realized that a book that should not be rare is right now like as of th- this week a hundred and fifty dollars whereas, Prior to the COVID outbreak, online the book was like thirty dollars. Have you noticed that there's been on stuff that's not exactly rare, but people aren't resupplying their their used stuff, so certain prices on crazy books are just shot through the roof.
2: Well, online book prices are um, are a baffling jungle, and there's all kinds of crazy uh, stuff all the time uh, that I see in terms of prices. You know, people. Uh, put us crazy price on and just sort of, you know, wait for the greater fool to come along and, and and buy it. And I also think that people are like sitting around and going through their cabinets and saying, well, I don't use this anymore. I wonder if I could get some money for it. And they're throwing it out there with some absurd price. And then somebody else comes along and says, well, I was gonna sell this for 20 bucks, but look, this guy's asking $55. Why don't I ask 65? And, and then there are these bizarre Price climbs on books that actually nobody's buying. I mean, the weird, the dangerous thing about looking at uh, Amazon, for instance, is you don't really know that anybody's paying those prices. Uh, I watch prices on books sometimes, and you see the same seller with the same book for hundreds of dollars for months at a time. So, and then, you know, for us, somebody comes in and says, Oh, I want to sell you a copy of this book because it's, you know, $500 on Amazon and maybe it's not really getting $500. So it's always good to be patient about about hard to find books because you just don't know what to believe. eBay is a better place to see what the real action is. Cause you can see what's sold and what people have actually paid.
3: What, like how much is there still an opportunity to just like go find good books in like boxes of books or is that is that gone the way of the dodo does that not exist anymore
2: oh it still happens uh, but it was never like you know you were going to buy a house in the hamptons because you you went to a garage sale and uh, uh upstate and and came back with three rare books i mean that kind of thing you know it's not you're not going to find the declaration of independence in a thrift store um but people dream about that <laughs> uh you know we do a lot with selling older books um we we try very hard when we're putting out a list of of older books to tell people about them to give the story and the background uh we're going out later this week with an offer of a book that was from the personal collection of a guy who was uh exiled from naples because he pissed off the king of naples and he fled to England and decided the food was so horrible that he was going to improve the uh, uh, the British dining habits. Uh, so he wrote books, he collected books, and we ended up with a couple of things out of his collection. So you tell a story like that about books and people become caught up. They become engaged and you give them context. And it's hard to do that uh, online sometimes uh, if you've got somebody who's just going through a box and slapping prices on them
3: how much extra value is there on someone having owned a book? It depends
2: a lot on who that someone is uh, and and also how much you can tell they sort of, uh, you know, cared and, and engaged about it. But it can, you know, if the story's right, if you have, I'm just gonna make something up off the top of my head, I don't know that this is out there, but if you have a copy of Mastering the Art of French Cooking that Julia Child inscribed and gave to James Beard, that's going to really amplify the price and that's already a book that carries a high price um, so you know if she inscribed it to, to beard it you know I would say double the price of a of a otherwise inscribed first edition
3: so so you're saying I should go out and forge that right now <laughs> well yeah.
2: I'm not giving any uh, anybody any nah, instructions nah. On that.
3: Nah. I mean, I'm hesitant to even tell you about the book that I was interested in just because I don't want the price to get pushed up because it's one of those things where if even five more people want it, then it's going to be a problem for me to get it when the time comes. You know what I'm saying? Because the book that I want to get is online scanned, but the A, the scanned copy is horrible and I just can't stand reading scanned books online as opposed to having a real copy. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's,
2: it's, the whole experience of reading online is, is, uh, is different. In some things, it works really well, but it tends to be with something that was written and formatted for that purpose, whereas a scan of an older book, is, it can be a real, it uh, makes my eyes
3: bleed. Well, maybe I'll talk to you about it offline. Yeah. Because but... it, it needs to be a classic in the field. This book that I'm thinking of, which I'm teasing everyone with now, is amazing. It's an amazing book. It's fantastic. I'll give this hint, which is not going to give it away. It was rediscovered by Shirley Cora here, and she came up because I had Harold McGee call her to find out information on the author of that uh, French cake book that I talked about last week. His name name escapes me. He's uh, what was his name? It was a two. Uh, Bruce Healy and Paul. that's God. it. So like someone on, you know, a listener was like, there's no information on the internet about Bruce Healy. He's kind of dropped off the map. So I was like, well, I saw that Shirley Corr here had written the introduction or the foreword to like one of his books. And so I was like, well, Harold knows Shirley and she's still going strong. Apparently is still writing a book now. And someday we'll put, would you say if I had to choose one of her books, would you do bake-wise as a classics in the field or cook-wise? I, Harold says bake-wise. I, I, I agree with Harold. That's that's
2: where S- Shirley's heart is, um, yeah. is the baking.
4: We actually had we had a listener write in yesterday in the chat, classics in the field recommendation. Uh, they also noted, your podcast was recommended to me by Matthew Voss of Marvell Bar in Minneapolis. He said it was his favorite podcast. He's listened to every episode since then. The book that they were recommending was Cookwise by Shirley Garer. Well,
3: we're doing, we're gonna, we're we're thinking Bake. Look, I have only met her once or twice, but she's an ama- amazing person. But anyway, so she rediscovered when she, or I should say, she wrote about and allowed other people to discover. I'm sure she had it in her collection a long time. This book. So it's only readers of Bakewise who, by the way, which right now is currently at a relatively high price and is, is scarce as a used book, which is kind of interesting for a book that's so recent. But I think that's just a COVID-related phenomenon. You know what I mean? But whatever. Um, but this book is just amazing. I can't believe, but I can't, it, I'm not gonna pay $150 for it. You know what I'm saying? You should uh, You should send me an email. Let's see what we can do. I don't even know don't what this worry, book is. Yeah, don't but... worry people. All of this will become clear. If you continue to be uh, listeners of our podcast, as soon as I get my hands on a copy, then I'll do classics in in the field. Because as of now, I haven't done any classics that I don't personally own uh, a copy of. Although, again, that could could change. Like, I've never done the Gastronomic Regenerator because I don't own a copy. I have scans. And that's, in fact, um, early on, you won't remember this, uh, Matt, but I... I went to the New York Public Library in kind of like maybe 2001, 2002, pretty soon after I discovered your store and with a really like, you know, rudimentary at the time, digital camera got their copy of the Gastronomical Generator. And the Gastronomical Generator, for those of you that don't know, is a book by Alexis Sawyer, who is kind of one of that fairly early generation of. There may be two generations after the uh, French Revolution, French chef moved to England when, you know, France was exporting its culinary prowess like nobody's business. You wanted a French chef. Anyway, he was the French chef who had moved to England, had a place called the Reform Club, and wrote a giant book called the Gastronomic Regenerator which was, I learned about that because that was one of MFK Fisher's favorite books. And so when I was reading MFK Fisher is how I got turned on the gastronomic regenerator. I went to the New York Public Library, which at the time had all of their cookbooks in the public library. They've since been shipped to Jersey. So it takes a day to see them if you wanna see one of them and sat down there for like four or five hours with a camera taking a picture of every page, like an idiot. And then I printed out and I brought a printed out copy to Kitchen Arts and Letters. That was many, that was decades ago. But um, how did I get on this? What was I talking about? Gastronomic generator. Eh, who knows? Um, so like, I won't do a copy of that, but at the time the Gastronomic Regenerator was like a $400 book. Is it still like a $400 book?
2: If you can find an original, you, I think, four hundred dollars would be a good price. There are, uh, you know, some scans out there and so forth, but they're, uh, the quality on a lot of those scans is uneven. Uh, so you take your chances.
3: Yeah, yeah. All right. So what do you guys think we should do? Should we do the classics in the field now, and then afterwards, if we have time, answer some questions? Should we answer some questions first, and then do classics in the field? What do you guys think? What should we do?
4: The the same person who wrote in with the classics recommendation of Shirley Corraher did have a question for you. I don't know if you want to group the two.
3: All right. Is it a cookbook-related question? Because mm-hmm. while we have Matt on the phone, we should do some – We should if we have cookbook-related questions, we should do them. If anyone's going into the chat room with questions about
4: cookbooks, as they say, now is the time. Not a cookbook-related question. So we could
3: – All right. Give me the question. <laughs> give me the question. I'll, I'll it uh, So this was
4: from Mark K. Uh, he – asks if you can make a reasonable argument as to why I would believe the calories my body absorbs from a given food are the same as the energy released by that food in a bomb calorimeter. Sure. It's They're probably, not. What? They're not. There's no way they are. Yeah. Okay. There's absolutely
3: no way that they are. That's like a, it's a bogus argument. That's why in general, in general, the whole argument is banana llama. You know what okay. I mean? Uh, like the, like the whole way that these things are measured is, 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 not baggy
4: you know what I mean I mean that's basically what he was asserting so okay <laughs> cool. yeah, yeah
3: all right all right good all right so do you guys think we should do like a couple questions and then classics you think we should do class what do you what 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 all right so the first ever guest edition of classics in the field yeah all right Matt take it away what do you got for us I hear you brought two classics in the field
2: I did um and they Don't seem to be that similar, though I think they are linked by uh, a very common thread, which is context. Um, The first one is a book by Jane Grigson called Charcuterie and French Pork Cookery. Uh, It was originally published in the mid-1960s. For people out there who are looking around, there was a U.S. edition with a slightly different title called The Art of Making Sausages, Pâtés, and Other Charcuteries. Um, and this is a book that has been continuously in print for 50 years. Uh, it is um, astonishingly detailed uh, for a book that was targeted uh, at uh, home cooks. But it is, uh, it is passionate. It is careful. Um, it is uh, sometimes very offhand about what you might be willing to do and what you might be able to obtain but it's also incredibly informative about the way uh, French people uh, handle pork. And um, it's the result of years that uh, she and her husband spent living uh, in a little town uh, in the Loire called Tro, uh, which uh, was a, is a village that's still notable for the fact that it has a lot of troglodyte homes, houses that are built into cave walls, Uh, in the stone of the region. But throughout the book, Grigson is talking about what you would find, how you would find these different dishes in uh, charcuterie shops in France. Uh, She's telling you about how a home version might differ from what you get in the shop. And she's just really uh, taking your interest incredibly seriously when it comes to handling, handling pork and preserving it.
3: So interesting thing about this book, and I remember um, many years ago. This was oh, I don't know, two thousand and four, maybe two thousand and five. Um, I was working for Food Arts uh, at the time, and uh, the the book *Charcuterie*, the kind of uh, ruhlman polson uh, book, was not yet out. It was it was in galleys, and I had gotten a galley, and I was asked to. Write about uh, books on charcuterie, and at the time before the that book came out, uh, my copy says it's called "The Art of Charcuterie." I have the nineteen ninety-one Echo Press paperback edition. Um, It uh, it was the only book available, right? And I think I even asked you, like, except for the extremely professional, um, you know, that that French that French professional set that was translated in, it was like $150 a book or whatever. It was the only available book.
2: Yeah, the cotton, so.
3: Yeah, Um, so it was kind of amazing that this was the only book available. I remember at the time I was really young when I I read it and it made me a little bit nervous because like all of the recipes, and I wanted to, you know, now that I have you, I'll ask you, the recipes for nitrates and nitrites they all recommend, uh, at least the ones that I remember, recommend saltpeter as an ingredient. And is that just a bad translation out of the French? Was she act- Or was she actually specifying saltpeter, which is what everyone prior to the 90s used to recommend for curing? Like, what do you think the deal is with, with that? I think she was actually specifying it. I mean, she gives instructions on, on going
2: to the chemist to get it. Uh, that was that was in common usage
3: yeah Uh, because I mean I remember that would be that was one of the reasons why I was kind of loath to do a lot of the like kind of longer cured things was because of the specification of again I was also young and cocky at the time I didn't I couldn't like look past my own generation you know what I mean because uh, you know, when I first got this book, which it was sometime in the '90s, you know, I was still in my 20s. I was like, "What does anybody else know?" You know what I mean? Uh, I pr- and I probably haven't reread it since 2000, since since about 2003, 2004. So I think I should go back and and reread it. I think one of the interesting things about America is we tend to focus on the cultures that we learn things from. And especially after the charcuterie book that, you know, Polson and those guys put out and the wave of Italian stuff that happened and kind of the salumi craze, a lot of people's focus on cured meats in general is very Italian now in the the U.S. And I think maybe that's another reason why a lot of people don't know this work, which is much more focused on kind of French. You would think that French would be the charcuterie to be just because of the huge range of charcuterie. But really, in the U.S., we tend to focus more on Italian products. What do you think?
2: I think that's very true. I mean, it's been a sexiness to... um... Italian foods that was coming starting to come on strong in the 90s, and I mean, it's continued uh, to be with us. There was a point in the 90s where I think publishers were just slapping the word Italian on anything and putting it out there, and that's that's fallen back now. But uh, people overlook the fact that you know we're in English we're using a French word to describe to describe these products, Um, and there is a uh, a comfort level in this book with with curing meat that uh, that speaks of a really long acquaintance. She talks about, uh, and my French pronunciation is not strong, so forgive me, uh, a sour, which is basically a brine crock uh, that she kept uh, on the counter into which she would, she would add things and just leave them there mixing together. So she sort of recommends starting out with a five pound loin of pork, uh, a boned leg of pork, a hock, a two pound piece of pork belly, and then what she calls a shifting population of trotters, ears, tails, pieces of pork skin, and anything else the butcher throws in for a copper or two. And this was the thing she would reach into and pull pieces out and use as needed. Um, We don't approach uh, meat curing that way these days. We've been, made afraid of it uh, and possibly for good reason, but it's a, it's a kind of uh, intimacy with the food that, uh, that has been lost as we've become more regimented, more, uh, more disciplined in our, uh, in our approach. And the the very specific temperature the very specific uh, salinity of the water, that's not what she was doing. And that's not what the women
3: she was learning from. Were doing. Right. And she, well, the other good thing is she's a good writer. You know what I mean? Like, you want to read the book. And this is the only, like, how come you don't think she's maintained her fame among the general public? Is because she was writing such specific books, like her other books, The Mushroom Feast. Any good? Beautiful.
2: Well, I mean, this is, I think, one of the things that uh, if you were to, if you have a listener from the UK, everybody there knows Jane Grigson. Her work has stayed in print there. It's commonly available. It's highly revered. Um, you know, she died uh, fairly early in 1990. She had cancer, uh, but she was uh, a writer for The Observer. She was a weekly columnist. Uh, so it's a, it's uh, to a degree the way Elizabeth David isn't particularly well known here versus the UK. Uh, she never quite broke out of.
3: So uh, the famous French ham. I'm going to look at this one section of the book this uh the famous french ham uh jambon de bayonne uh i've always been interested i've only had it a a couple of times but she has the the first english recipe i've ever seen for it so for those of you that don't know in the i became kind of (sighs) obsessed with cured hams long many decades anyway this is it uh so this is her simplified version here's a simplified version to be attempted after after the hay harvest in a dry summer, right? So this is to give you an idea of the way she writes. One leg of pork two, and then she has dry salting. Notice she doesn't say dry brining because that doesn't exist. There is salting and then there is brining. I don't understand why there has to be a word dry brine. Do any of you guys understand that? No. There's salting and there's brining. Whatever. Uh, Two pounds salt, two tablespoons saltpeter, half pound granulated sugar. She then has a brine with red wine and then specifies six cups soft or rain water. Another three tablespoons of saltpeter, block salt, sea salt, rosemary and olive oil. And then, I'll just read a little bit, she goes, if you have a ham from a newly killed pig, you will have to beat it with a piece of clean wood. One of those old fashioned butter pats are excellent for this. This brings out a certain amount of blood and also smooths out the wrinkles in the skin. So this is the kind of writing that she does. Thread a piece of strong string through the knuckles so that you can suspend the ham over a dish in a dry airy place for three to five days according to temperature. You will find that a pinkish liquid runs out. Mop it off twice a day at least. If you were buying the leg straight from a butcher, tell him what you want it for. You will probably not have to go through the above performance. The next step is to remove the bone, which is not too difficult, provided you have a small, very sharp knife and plenty of elbow room. So she just has a very nice kind of tone and lyrical writing and you know tells you to beat things with bats and then hang them over plates until a pinkish liquid comes out, which is all enjoyable. You should read it, right? Yeah, she has this infectious confidence. Um and it's it it's inspiring yeah yeah enjoyable i'm gonna also get is mushroom feast cheap i want to pick that up i like any sort of feast of mushrooms mushroom feast is it should be around fairly easily
2: there is an edition currently distributed in the united states by a british publisher called grub street do you say
3: called grub street grub street yeah but not grub street the website no no this is this is older than you know
2: than that grub street the website is is the new kid on the block. This is the uh, this is a publisher that's been around for, for decades and decades, and they're actually named for uh, for the tradition in, in Britain of, of doing
3: work for hire. Nice. Being on cool. uh, all right. So th- do you want to then talk about your second one and then how you think they tie in or.
4: Sure. Or we also we do have a question for you in the chat about cookbooks.
3: Okay,
4: which is just can you recommend an Ethiopian cookbook, the best Ethiopian cookbook you guys are aware of? You know, it
2: has been um, one of the great, excuse me, tragedies of American publishing that uh, Ethiopian cookbooks have not existed in English except when self-published by enterprising Ethiopian ingredients. Uh, There was a book that came out last year called Ethiopia. Uh, by a man whose last name I am going to pronounce wrong because I don't have it in front of me, uh, Gabrenses. Um And it's, a, uh, it's actually a very serious, uh, detailed book with a lot of regional material. Prior to that, it was um, an enormous fight to find material in English on Ethiopian cooking. Um, and it's inexplicable to me that something that is so specific and has such a strong uh, cultural character was not well represented
3: Mm, good question
1: this episode is brought to you by bend a table a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items I recently received the essentials box, and one of my favorite items in that box was the uh, Rancho Gordo Alubia Blanca beans. So they're like a little white bean, almost kind of like a a navy bean. And I did it, you know, fairly traditionally. Instead of water, I used chicken stock, which I guess isn't really traditional. Uh, Threw it into my rice cooker with uh, some rosemary and a bunch of bay leaves some people don't really believe that bay leaves have a flavor or help with flatulence but i know they have a flavor and even if there's a possibility that they help with flatulence i'll add them then you hit the rice cooker you walk away from it and you oh i threw some garlic into a good amount of garlic uh came back in a couple of hours rice cooker was done beans were delicious delicious Go to bentotable.com to start your own monthly subscription. Use the discount code capital H, capital R, capital N, like Heritage Radio Network, to get $20 off a new subscription, and Bentotable will donate $10 to support cooking issues and all of HRN's programming.
3: All right, so on to your second classic.
2: Okay, so my second recommendation is a book called Flatbreads and Flavors by Jeffrey Alford and Naomi Duguid. Uh, The subtitle is A Baker's Atlas, And this is um, a tour around the world of the different flatbreads produced in different cultures and the foods that are eaten with them. And uh, it goes through Central Asia, it goes through China and Malaysia, it goes through India and Sri Lanka, through the Middle East, through North Africa, through Europe, through North America. And um, it covers, you know, familiar things that you might think of immediately, like pita or uh, chapatis, but it has, for instance, um, a naan that's made by the Uyghur people in Kashgar in Western China. Uh, It has a griddle bread called myrtabak from Malaysia. That is, um, the dough is sort of flung and folded in this elaborate pizza-like preparation before it's being cooked on a griddle. It has a corn bread from, a corn and wheat bread from India called Tikkar. Um, it has all these amazing breads. Um, flatbreads are basically the earliest type of bread that human beings prepared. Loaf pans came along a lot later and they, um, they're integral to so many cultures. And the most appealing thing about the way these two people handled this book is that they give you a sense about why this bread in this place is it the terrain does it you know require them to grow a certain grain here is fuel in short supply do they have to have highly efficient ovens do they have to be able to cook it over on uh, a griddle over a fire as opposed to say a retained heat oven which might take a lot of fuel to get up to speed and be useful only in a large community so they're they're plugging all these things together to show you where this food comes from and why it's eaten. Um, and I also happen to choose really enticing, exciting foods with lots of, lots of flavors in here, but it's a,
3: uh, I think, a
2: beautiful tour of the
3: world. Now, for those of you that don't know the, these two authors, like the, they're their whole magilla, right? was to they were a husband wife team they they got divorced sometime in the mid 2000s they were like a they were a husband wife team and they would they would choose a subject right the, the one of theirs that i happen to own is seductions of rice which i believe i bought from you and um they would go like all over the world but in generally in kind of Asia writ large so least of the book that that I have I guess because it's rice and um, they would see how similar style of ingredient or ingredient like rice or flatbread in this case was translated to different areas different cultures different uses and they would have a kind of a chapter on each locale and they would have spent you know a decent chunk of time in each place kind of learning and also taking, you know, great photos of what's going on cuz that's that's kind of part of it, right? Would you say that's an accurate it's kind of that was their their MO, right?
2: That was definitely the way with the later books. Flatbreads doesn't have the photography unfortunately that the later books do. Uh but it still has some pretty amazing storytelling. Uh, there's an account of uh, they're bicycling through, uh, I think it's in Turkmenistan, and uh, stop to watch a, a young woman uh, who's firing up an outdoor oven, and she's going to be placing breads on the side of the inside of the oven. And as she's getting ready to do this, her mother-in-law comes out to watch her. Um, and, uh, and some of the breads fall from the side of the oven into the fire. And the young woman is almost in tears as the mother-in-law stands there glowering. And they see all this without, you know, being able to speak a word of the local language. But it's a sense about how uh, integral these foods are to these to spices these and these people.
3: I have to say, uh, having a bread fall into the fire off the side, I mean, I've only done it with a tandoor, but having a bread fall off the fire uh, off the side into the fire is an embarrassing and humiliating moment. <laughs> It really is. It really just, it sucks. Because once it falls in there and it catches on fire, have you ever, like, a, you know, if you, have you guys watched The Simpsons where Homer is cooking a whole pig and Lisa, who is daughter, is turned vegetarian and so she somehow, like, ejects the pig and the pig, like, goes on this, like, Journey through the air and, and like oh, through all this terrible thing, and Homer's chasing it, saying it's still good, it's still good, it's still good. Like that's what it feels like when the bread falls into the fire, and you try to think that you're gonna get it, but you're like, it's still good, it's still good, and it's not. It sucks. It's burnt. It's got charcoal in it. It's ruined. You've ruined it. It's ruined. Anyway, um, so one of the things I wanted to uh, kind of ask you, this is an interesting point, is that I wonder how this kind of in fact uh you know five years ago i mean after they got divorced i know they split and uh he she's i think still in toronto right and then yeah and then he like moved off to thailand and like kind of became a a recluse and wrote a book that no one has read as far as i know called uh chicken in a mango tree or something like this yes about a a time is that a good book by the way um it's a very idiosyncratic
2: book. There's really nothing else out there like it. Uh, but I think you have to already be pretty knowledgeable
3: about Thai cuisine for it to. Really I mean, fail. he moved to a Khmer-speaking village in Thailand and just like lived there for four years and kind of, you know, started living with a woman from that village, and then wrote a book about you know, cooking up scorpions and whatnot. Right? Is that basically the long and the short of it?
2: Uh, that's yeah. I think that's the short. Yeah, short. that's
3: the short. Yeah, um, but they have that book, like, no one. I guess because he he doesn't have a publishing regime behind him anymore. Like that book didn't do any business, right? It was it was not particularly active. I mean, it was not
2: well represented. I think in
3: the market, um, and it was a,
2: a enough of a departure from what he'd done previously that uh,
3: people who knew his name didn't quite make the connection. Right. Right. So and so my question is is kind of in today's world and by today i mean like the past five years right where do you think this kind of project would fit in like the idea of i was, I was thinking about it in terms of a lot of the problems when i'm looking at my own books going back and i'm for classics in the field and i'm rereading books that I, you know I read 20 years ago sometimes you know 25 years ago and I picked them up again or historic books that I've you know read recently is trying to kind of parse the meaning at the time what do you how do you think a project like two white folk from Canada in this case Toronto, like going around the world, mining different cultures for their, for their information. I know that's not how this is actually working in the book because it's more of just like, they're trying to thread the whole world together by looking at the differences in different applications of similar ideas all over the world. But how do you think that that project would be viewed if it was coming out today versus when it did in the
2: 90s? I think it would still be fairly receptive because their whole attitude towards what they're doing is um, is it's, it's not patronizing um, and they're not trying to say, here, we've improved this for you. Uh, right, they're not appropriating and yeah. I mean, that, that, they would admit, I mean, both of them together would say, you know, they're not giving you the recipe exactly as they got it wherever it was they ate it, because you can't get the same, you know, flour uh that somebody who's making bread in the mountains of uh of Tajikistan is getting. So they, you know, they had to adapt to what they could get in their in their home kitchen in, in Toronto and to what they thought their readers could reasonably adapt. But they're also really always intimately in putting interested in putting you in touch with the culture that the food comes from, um, which is different than like, say, my writing a cookbook on why don't we say Ethiopian food and saying, well, you know, here's my, uh, here's my uh, ketogenic Ethiopian cookbook. <laughs> or, you know, here's my Ethiopian smoothie collection. Uh, and I think that kind of appropriation- <laughs> Please write you know, that book.
3: Please write that book
2: yeah, the keto, the uh, the keto smoothie Ethiopian cookbook I can I can
3: turn that out this yeah 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 oh, well first of all I don't I've heard it a million times what exactly is keto is that just high protein uh, keto is high fat high fat yeah okay uh, now are you familiar with the Midwestern of course you are the the pie shake uh no actually I'm I'm intrigued but I don't think I've encountered it yeah. And there's a there's a Midwestern uh, North Northern, I believe it's like Michigan, Minnesota, that kind of area where, like, there's a number of restaurants where when you order a milkshake, you're like, yeah, yeah, you want to slice a pie in that? And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they like throw pie into the milkshake, and you blend it in. It's a pie shake. Okay, you know about Okay, so that just that that exists. That's a thing. Right? Uh, you know, Just take that for what, take that for what it is. Then, um, so I would assume that your Ethiopian shake book, you would be throwing injera in and doing like pie shake with injera in it so that you would have the full injera as though you were eating an Ethiopian by the way for those of you that I don't know have never been to an Ethiopian restaurant injera is the bread that you you know that they tip the in the old days was made exclusively with teff which is a grain from Ethiopia now in the US you're lucky if there's any freaking teff in your stuff at all but I, but Peter Kim shows favorite punching bag and the emeritus uh, director of uh, or the you know former director of museum of food and drink he uh says that if that most Ethiopian restaurants at least in New York if you call them a day in advance and say you want a hundred percent teff that they'll do it for a for a fee which is a good thing to know um but anyway so that's the it's the flatbread that they use which I know I looked up the table of contents of uh the flatbread book that you were talking about classics in the field there is an injera recipe in it is there not
2: there is, yeah, it's actually mentioned on the cover.
3: Yeah. So, yeah, so you'd have to have injera blended into each one of your Ethiopian smoothies, I think.
2: Now that would probably destroy the whole ketogenic
3: thing,
4: but <laughs> you'd have to, to do one or the other. Two different projects. two you different know, projects.
3: But uh, we. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the like? What's the uh, what's the name of the? It just popped out of my mind. Uh, Ethiopian mead. Oh, oh my god! What the heck? The, what's the name of it? Just went out of my head. Anyway, yeah, because that's also not ketogenic. I don't. I don't feel like maybe it's the most ketogenic. Although maybe I think they're two separate books. I think your Ethiopian shake book and then
4: your Ethiopian keto diet book are maybe two different.
2: All right, so it'll take me two weeks to two write two
3: different those. books.
4: Don't. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to sell this series <laughs> short. You want to milk it for all it's worth. Um, we don't have a ton of time. We got five minutes left. But another question from the chat. Quick one. Uh, Devin is asking, Matt, what is the most humorous cookbook he knows of?
2: Oh, God. Okay. So um, this is a wide topic, but look for a book called Bull Cook by George Herder, which was originally Bull, published. Bull, like in- the animal? B-U-L-L, yep. C-O-O-K. Mm-hmm. Published in the early 60s. Um, it's around, there was an echo did a reprint in the mid 90s for that as well, Um It is the most hilariously confident, assertive book you've ever met. Uh, It contains Chateaubriand's recipe for Chateaubriand. It is um, page after page after page, this guy who ran a sporting goods company in Minnesota, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Herders. uh, Yeah, is just laying it down. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that he's right. But he is so, so self-assured uh, about everything he says that um, it's
3: yeah. He is it's, uh, wrong about. I, I, we did hit one of his one of the bull uh, one of the bull cookbook. We did one of the three volumes as a classic in the field early, early on, like a year ago. And everything he says is pretty much wrong, except for I have cooked some of the recipes and they've worked. But like. Yeah, yeah, all of his assertions are incorrect. He also really, really has a lot of kind of, like, uh, he hates Hollywood. He hates magazine writers. He has some kind of unfortunate things to say about women. I mean, he is, an un- he, is, he, is, he is a weird, was a weird dude. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is, this was a guy who 60 years ago couldn't get a mainstream publisher to release his book um so he's self-published um so he he was definitely a fringe character to begin with
3: you are maybe the yeah, only person to ever
2: admit that they cooked from the book
3: yeah i have cooked from the book i have cooked from the book and uh i mean i thankfully have not had to follow it's the only cookbook i own with advice on how to survive a hydrogen bombing exactly and, and it's just it's so weird like it's also like the one thing I've never tested is he's the one that told me how to uh, how to how to kill a snapping turtle. He's like, there's two ways. Are you familiar with the two ways to kill a snapping turtle, Matt? I don't think I, I read that part. So you can hold a stick out, and if you're lucky, the turtle will bite the stick, and you can chop its head off. The alternate way is to is to stick your finger in its nether region, and then that will surprise it. Its head will pop off, and you can chop the head off. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, I bet it would surprise you. Yeah, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Woohoo! Oh god! Boom! Snap! Yeah, this is an amazing yeah. delayed prank on the part of the author.
3: Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, uh, yeah. He calls. He says that every. He's like, uh, he, I don't know whether I mentioned this on air, but like uh, one of the things that sticks out in my head is he describes Palm Springs, and he loves Palm Springs, except for. He wishes that every person in it would be dead. You know what I mean? He calls and he says really terrible stuff, like really terrible stuff about the people in Palm Springs, but he loves it. And he's been to all of these crazy restaurants. They are worth looking at. Um, I actually have another classics in the field question from Instagram. Neil Herzl wrote in and said that his classics in the field suggestion is imbibed by Dave Wondrich. He said, even though this book is not very old, it's a must read for all bartenders He says, a few years ago, I feel like reading it was a given, but he feels it has somewhat fallen by the wayside with younger bar staff. I think this is a problem in general, is that as you get older, uh, Neil, as we all get older, we realize how short the memory is of the generations that come after you and how much they kind of want to make their own way and ignore in certain ways, like kind of like the kind of the people that we think are giants. I mean... Dave Wonders is still revered in the bar world, as far as I can tell, and, I, and people are still reading it. But what, what do you think, Matt? Have you seen? I mean, that book still sells really well, right?
2: It does sell really well. It's, I mean, it's, I don't think we have a rival to it. But I, I understand the process you're talking about, by which, um, you know, new things come along and they sort of, you know, shoulder aside things that have been around, and they may not be of the same quality but they still they're new when you have an author who's you know out there beating the drum and waving the flag and saying hey look at my me look at my book um but if somebody comes to me with a question about you know american cocktail history that's going to be the first thing i pull off the shelf of course
3: Um, i mean it was it was the book first of all it was the only book that had done that it was the first book of its kind like that i'm sure other people have done things like that now you had um you know, Ted Hayes' Lost Ingredients and Vintage. What was this book called? Lost, what was it called?
2: Forgotten Cocktails. or But anyway, but that was it. I can picture it, but I don't have it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah,
3: Yeah, that's a a great, it's a great book, but it's a different, that's a a different thing. It wasn't kind of a serious history. You know what I mean? Um,
2: Yeah, it was, it was a a recipe collection with, with, with strong uh, supporting notes as opposed to Dave's, which was a history,
3: with
4: Correct. Correct. Um, we got a, we, we to yeah. bounce pretty soon here. Any final items?
3: Huh. All right. Let me answer this question real quick so that I can say I answered a cooking question uh, other than how to chop the head off a snapping turtle, which I feel will help somebody out there in cooking issues land. Somebody is going to get their finger we preemptively dirty.
4: Preemptively handled that one. Yeah,
3: somewhere Somewhere. this week someone's getting their finger dirty, but that turtle's going to get the worst end of it. Um. <laughs> Jeff Clark wrote in on the chat room, I recently moved into a home with a built-in wall microwave. It's nice, but much more powerful than the countertop units I've used in the past. And I keep burning my popcorn before I can pop most of the kernels. What is the ideal wattage for a good microwave popcorn? This I don't know. Uh, But then you say this, my understanding is that the effective wattage is proportional to the power setting on most microwaves. Not true, not true, Jeff. Not true. Very, 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 very few microwaves actually provide proportional power. Instead, for those of you that have microwaves, think about what happens when they're working. When you put them on high power, you turn it on, and you hear this, and then you hear the thing going, right? And then when you put it on lower power, you hear because what happens is, is they're actually turning the magnetron on at full blast, but lower power cycles are only keeping it on for a shorter period of time. It's in fact not proportional at all. Microwaves are always, except for I think either Panasonic or Sharp made one that actually was proportional power, but they're on full blast. They're just using um, a duty cycle and because it takes a certain amount of time, for magnetrons to fully come up to power and put out you know the energy that they need to put out right uh, they don't switch them off and on very quickly so they don't work like like a like a like a pulse width modulation to get the to get the the power so like you know when i 'm doing an, a, a light emitting diode off of let's say an Arduino or something right i'm turning it on full power and I can flash it off and on real quick to make it look like it's dim even though it's actually uh, you know it's just flashing real fast My Microwaves can't do that. So uh, a high power microwave is always putting out high power microwaves You're just doing it in doses. Now, that said, you could probably turn it down and that's going to be fine by your popcorn. But there's another way to do it. Microwaves try to dump all of their energy into the food that's inside the microwave cavity at the time. Now, some, some effed up things happen. For instance, as soon as a certain part of the food gets brown, uh, carbonized at all, brown or black, th- that is a huge acceptor of microwave energy. And so, Preponderance of the microwave energy will get absorbed in that. So once something does burn in a microwave, it tends to burn hard and then light on fire. That's why you could take grape halves, cut them in half, leave the skin connected, and get those fireballs because you dehydrate and brown that one little section, and then it can start to carbonize and stuff can fly off. Or why, if you have like a little burning match and you get that little wooden tip with a little bit of charcoal on it, you can get those huge fireballs out of it because all of the microwave energy is gonna get focused on the place with the char. Okay, now that aside, also, if you really think it's too high powered, you can stick what's called a moderator into it. And it's real simple, just put a glass of water into the microwave along with the popcorn, uh, figure out how much water you need to add and that water will absorb a certain portion of the microwaves and make your microwave oven seem less powerful. And Jeff, I hope I've fixed your popcorn problem because first of all, you should be buying a Whirly Pop and making Whirly Pop popcorn during these times of COVID because clearly Whirly Pop popcorn is superior to microwave popcorn no matter what my son Dax tells you. Uh, But uh, it is terrible to be caught in this Netflix binge time without a source of popcorn. Am I right, guys? Tragedy. Right? I mean, can you imagine not having popcorn now? I can't even imagine it. Yeah. So uh, someone also wrote this in. This is uh, Matt Clems. This is the a day of many Mats, uh, and, and I'll just uh, I'll just say this. I'm not going to answer, Matt, your question this week because I don't have time on your Gaggio Espresso machine with an Olka pump. Uh, I will just tell you this. Um uh, yeah, it's a little more complicated, but I understand I'm gonna answer it next week because I don't want you to be without espresso during the times of COVID, okay? Uh just replace your Oka pump for now and I'll talk to you more about pumps later. You can get Oka pumps relatively inexpensively. Oka pump, by the way, guys, is the is the vibratory pump that's inside of most home espresso machines, including Gaggio, the Rancilio, Sylvia, etc. Cetera, etc. We'll talk more about that later, but it wrote something very nice. He said, "Thanks for the show. There's nothing quite like cooking issues, part how to cook, part soap opera, part frat party and part repair manual." Hmm. Today he came for the repair manual, but unfortunately Matt, I don't have time to give you your question it's due worth. So, I'll come back to that next uh, next week and uh, anything you want to say Matt from uh, Kitchen Arts and Letters on the, on the way out. I'm super excited to have you on. I um, for any of you like go to their website go to their store support local bookshops i mentioned last week that uh in my book which you thankfully sell there i gave a uh, a recipe that is only given out in um, the copies that you buy at kitchen arts and letters so i mean you really need to support um what they do um go check them out when they reopen but you got any any uh, stuff you want to say to the crew on the way out
2: uh, you know, thank you guys so much for having me. I could talk about like this stuff forever, so it's good to have other people around. So I don't. Oh wait,
3: one last thing. One last thing. Oh my God, you were going to say how you were going to tie together these two books. The the oh, the... it's
2: just it's it's the context that that the that all this food fits into where it comes from. These are authors who tell you why this food is done this way and who makes it, uh, and I think that gets left out on a lot of books these days. It's just a, a recipe collection with. You know, lots and lots of recipes and nothing that really tells you why Mm -hmm. something gets Mm -hmm. made a certain
3: way. All right. And I don't like that. Well, that is a good way to tie them together. And this has been the Classics in the Field Kitchen Arts and Letters Cooking Issues.
1: Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter